This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's not the typical time of year to be thinking about watching the World Juniors Championship. It normally takes place in December, right? But it was postponed months ago because of all the players having positive COVID-19 tests. So now here we are. The tournament is getting ready to kick off in Edmonton. And normally this thing would be huge. But this year seems to be muted. In fact, there are tickets still available. Is it the time that it's taking place that has people less interested for some reason? Or is it the scandal surrounding Hockey Canada and the events that we've been reading about at previous World Juniors? Well, let's talk more about that. Joining us now is Dan Mason, a sports culture expert and professor of sports management at the University of Alberta. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised that there doesn't seem to be as much excitement for the World Juniors at this point? Um, I don't think so. I think that obviously the time of year is is uh, working against them, and and also as you'd mentioned, the uh, the scandal with Hockey Canada can't be helping things at all. So I think that um, we probably would be expecting less attendance and less interest. But certainly, having watched a couple of the games yesterday, it uh, it's pretty sparse there in, in the in the seating areas there. So it's uh it's not looking too good right now. So do you feel, is the scandal, all of this Hockey Canada World Juniors being in the news for all the wrong reasons uh, in the last little while, do you think that's also having an impact? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, especially for casual fans, those who would sort of be neither here nor there, going, should we go to the game or not, those are the ones that are probably saying no and, and choosing to do other things. I think that the diehard fans will come out for, for Team Canada, but um, certainly um, in the past what's happened is you've had to buy tickets to the other games in order to access the Team Canada games, and that's not the case right now. So if you looked at some of the games between some of the non-Canadian uh, and even U.S. countries, uh, there's really no one there to watch. Now, who would have thought that, Dan, right? We're talking about the World Juniors in Canada. Usually they come here and they are jam-packed. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the way in which the, the event itself has evolved as a sort of a cultural institution. I think that People associate it with the holiday break and spending time with their families and, and watching the games and going to the games and that sort of thing. So I think it's it's a sort of a double whammy here for 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 Hockey Canada because people usually have more a little bit more time and even resources around the holiday break uh, and they're not able to do that this time of year or people have just planned to go and do other things with their time and money. So is there a lesson here for Hockey Canada too? I mean, obviously they're trying, you know, learning a lot of lessons these days, but I wonder if the message is getting through and is low ticket sales the way to really make that hit home? Um, in some ways, yes, but I also think that, that Hockey Canada is, is probably not focused at all on, on selling as many tickets as possible. They're focusing on giving a playing opportunity for their athletes. And so I think that that's, probably how they're going to be evaluating the success of the event but certainly it's uh it doesn't look good when you're watching television and you see these massive rows of empty seats and that sort of thing so i think that um team canada is gonna or sorry hockey canada is going to 
have to sort of see where this goes when it's hosted in Canada coming up in the in the following year because that way they're having it during the same circumstances that they normally have them. So we may see a decline in interest in the future events, and so that will really be telling about whether Hockey Canada scandal is affecting things. Right. Now, there have been some changes out of Hockey Canada, some executives, you know, stepping down, some shuffling around there. But, you know, in your area of expertise, sport management, then, what would you advise them to do? And do you think they're doing it? Uh, I think there's there's a transparency issue here. I think that people were very surprised to learn where the money was going and, and what it was being used for and that sort of thing. So they have to build up that trust. And I think the trust really has to occur with the average hockey parent. So the ones that are deciding whether or not to put their children into minor hockey, they have to have this feeling that, that, that they're putting their children into an organization that they can have faith in, that that's not going to be, you know, covering up things that are happening behind the scenes that are, are not good and, and that sort of thing. So I think it has more to do with the actual grassroots development of the game than it has to do with the tournaments that they're hosting. I guess we shouldn't we shouldn't be too surprised by this, should we, Dan? I mean, I think for years we have been talking about how hockey was becoming unreachable for so many Canadian families because it was so expensive. So is this the reckoning, perhaps, that Hockey Canada to needed to deal with some of these other issues too? Yeah, and I think that you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think that, that if you're trying to encourage different groups to participate in hockey, you have to make it accessible financially. But not only that, you have to have the uh, the hierarchy of the organization reflect that as well. So you have to have people from different ethnic backgrounds and, 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 and more women in positions of power within the organization. So until we start to see that, it's kind of hard to believe that hockey is for everyone. You talked about transparency as an issue here, though, but do you see any of that changing with Hockey Canada? They still seem to struggle uh, to deal with, you know, any kind of criticism that comes their way. Um. I'm not too sure about that, but I think that um, obviously there has to be mechanisms in place that will allow people to have access to information when they need it. And I think that given that Hockey Canada is this quasi-public organization, um, that they're held to a different standard than some of these other leagues might be, like the National Football League, for example, which has a history of of behaviors of of athletes, but people still go to the games and... and, uh, find it popular and that sort of thing. So I think that there's a sort of duty of care here owed to the Canadian taxpayers that, that doesn't exist for these other leagues. Right. Did they forget that they were dealing with kids too? Because like those other leagues you talked about, they're dealing with adults, right? The NFL is dealing with supposedly adults. Uh, Hockey Canada, you're dealing with children. So there were, there were greater opportunities to have an influence on how those kids turned out and how they behaved. And it didn't seem like they took advantage of those opportunities. No, and I think that it's also a reflection of the broader changes that are are happening in society and and that there's a lot more accountability with organizations and businesses and that sort of thing. And I think that this is just a very high-profile example of how this is playing out. And so I think, you know, in in the long run, it's going to be a good thing that Hockey Canada is being forced to make these changes. Okay, but in the meantime, though, it's not going to look great for the organizers in Edmonton, is it, if these seats still go empty? Well, but I think, like I mentioned, there's there's sort of two mandates here. They, you know, they'd like to sell tickets, but they also it's about player development, and so they're trying to develop players coming up through the ranks and and moving forward and and advancing. And so I think that that when they decided to host the event in the summer, they knew that this was going to be a problem. 
but they still felt that it was important for these athletes to get that opportunity. So I think they are still trying to do things from that hockey development perspective. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem at all. Thanks. Dan Mason, sports culture expert, professor of sport management at the University of Alberta. I was reading a story talking about how Hockey Canada, how Team Canada is approaching this World Juniors, what is different about how the players are being dealt with. And so they're going through the code of conduct handbook. Used to be that the players were handed a code of conduct, you know, handbook and say, here, behave yourself, that kind of thing, which we know now didn't happen, right, in all cases. This year, the players were saying that their coaches, their managers, the people, you know, with the team are are sitting down with them and going through the code of conduct line by line, talking to them about it, talking to them about situations, talking about them and their behavior. And some of the players have been saying how helpful this is. And I'm thinking, well, what took them so long to do this? You are talking about young people here in their mid to late teens. Why wasn't this ever done before? Is it enough to make people say, well, maybe Hockey Canada is actually learning their lesson here? This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. All right, time for us to check in with our Roger Sohal this morning. We are talking social media. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. So I have to ask you, do you use WhatsApp? Okay, well, I have it. I don't use it regularly. There, There is a family group on there that occasionally yeah. um, engages in it, but I'm not, they all know I'm not a, a, a social media person. Like we had to do it because of a family situation. We had a loved one who was sick, so we were all using it. But I would just, until you asked me, I would say I hadn't used it in months. But your family will get you to use things that you don't want to. Oh, they've tried. that's where the conversation is. Yeah. So I'm only a part of WhatsApp. I'm only on there because of the family conversations. And at first I told myself, okay, don't ever share anything that you wouldn't want the world to know. And you know what? I don't want the world to know anything about me. So, <laughs> so I don't uh, actually use it all that much. But my family shares like you know, so many photos and I want to be a part of that. I want to see what the nieces and nephews are doing. So I'm on WhatsApp for that reason. The other thing is I have major privacy concerns about WhatsApp. Uh, There's so much about it that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't love the fact that they mine our data, that they create uh, these algorithms that pick up on what your preferences are. This all gets sold to companies. We know about all that stuff. So that's why I don't want to engage with it. But uh, I communicate with people on it who are in the UK where there are more privacy controls. So they don't have the same concerns that we have with WhatsApp in North America. Uh, Nonetheless, I'm on it uh, in order to have these conversations with my family and friends. But WhatsApp has a new update that actually makes it easier to avoid messages from your friends and family. So people used to be able to see when you last saw their message. And if you didn't respond right away, then people felt a bit slighted. Why didn't they get back to me? I can see that they read this message. Um, But now you can avoid that. So people won't see when you were last on there looking at the messages. So I think that's going to be a relief to a lot of people who might have some uh, anxiety around answering people's messages on time. Okay. I, first of all, I don't use it enough to even know that that was a thing. So I didn't even know (laughs) that was true. So, so now I'm even more disturbed and even more glad that I wasn't regularly using this thing because, you know, my family, they like to make fun of me because 
I don't do, I'm not on Facebook. They tried so hard years ago to put me on Facebook because they'd say, use a different name and like, you know, we can all just keep track of each other. But I've worn them down and now they know I'm not there. So if there's an invite or something, they send it to me separately. They just like email it to me or text it to me because they know that Simi's not going to see that. Oh, absolutely. My fantastic. Absolutely amazing. But this just reiterates to me is now I'm not going back on WhatsApp. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to. Uh, There is one feature though that might provide you some pause. And that is that soon you're going to actually be able to silently leave groups. You know, when you oh, silently yeah. leave a party without saying goodbye I to do everyone, that all the time. just like that. <laughs> I but that. this I think is like, this is fantastic because I have left groups before and it's immediately turned into just big shots fired. Everyone is like, what? Why did she leave the group? Why did she leave the group? I don't know why she left the group. Somebody text her, find out. So they get on a different platform to find out why I might have left a group. You know, I just don't have the time for like a million chats. Right. So soon you'll be able to just duck out of the group and nobody gets a notification about it. So that's a relief. First of all, that should be right across the board. iMessage should be doing that. Like everybody everybody yeah. should do that so that you can just leave a group without announcing it to everybody because that, you get added to them all the time. I have a relative who every time they send out a message, they create a whole new group and you oh, know no. they might miss a person or not. So there's like seven or eight different versions of the same group. So I, I support this 110%. Can I tell you about a related story quickly? Got to make it's it quick. That Facebook turned over chats used in prosecution of a 17-year-old in an abortion case, and it's creating alarm bells because people are like, well, if Facebook can turn over chats and Facebook owns WhatsApp, then that could probably happen with WhatsApp chats too. So just something for people to keep uh, in their minds. People should always assume that the company, the social media company that you're dealing with at some point will sell you out if they need to. I mean, that's just, you should operate on that assumption all the time anyway. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. So Raji Soho there, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about protecting our communities from the new climate reality. I mean, we learned that last year when we had that heat dome that, you know what, this is different. We haven't really had something like this to this extreme before. And then we found out that how many people had suffered and died as a result of that intense heat. So this year when we had that kind of few days of intense heat leading into the BC day-long weekend, there was a lot of focus on making sure people were okay. What we now know from the coroner's office is that 16 people died as a result of, they believe, you know, heat-related events, health events, that, you know, was that was the cause of why those 16 people passed away. So how do we deal with this moving forward? How do we protect people and our communities from this heat if we are going to continue to have these, you know, heat-related events, this new climate reality that we have? Is it a matter of planting more trees? Is it a matter of building shade into communities? Let's talk more about that. Is it easier said than done? Brent Totterin's with us now, city planner and urbanist at Totterburn Works and former Vancouver chief planner. Brent, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure, Simi. Good morning. Why don't communities do a better job of, you know, planting more trees and and getting more shade? Well, in my opinion, it starts with a bit of a blind spot, especially in a place like Vancouver, Metro Vancouver. You know, we we more obviously plan for rain in our public realm, uh, you know, making sure we keep dry uh, in the rainy seasons. than we think of planning for heat. 
And frankly, even in the context of heat, we've been doing it a bit. Well, I won't say backwards because it seemed it may probably made sense at the time. But our priority has been about protecting sun access to our streets and to our parks and such. And so, you know, we we make sure that we don't have build new buildings that cast too much shadow on a street or a park. And because the design priority is to actually protect the ability of sun to reach our street. But, you know, from my perspective, since I was chief planner, I was chief planner over 10 years ago. I've worked in a lot hotter places than us and places that are frankly ahead of us in the thinking about planning for shade as well as planning for sun and rain. Because, you know, in Australia, for example, where I work quite a bit, they actually deliberately provide shade with overhangs and street trees and such on all of their main streets because of how hot it is in the summer in Australia. And frankly, in in Australia, it's just getting hotter and hotter. So imagine how we plan for rain with those overhangs. They plan for sunshade with those overhangs uh, because, frankly, they needed to have the streets be comfortable. And that's just that's not for a special dangerous urban heat event. That's just for everyday summer days. Okay, so but you make a good point, though, and that is this requires a a rethink for us on the West Coast, because you're right. We've always thought about, well, dark, rainy fall and winter. Therefore, we need more light. But how how do we balance those two things, Brent? Well, I think we've got to design for more than one thing. First of all, it takes that rethink because, frankly, we're still not there yet. The city, city Hall just passed new policy that went even further in protecting uh, public spaces from shadow. And, and there wasn't anything about urban heat. So this blind spot, my own profession, city planning, is behind on this. And, you know, it's sort of the opposite of planning. We're, start, we're just starting to react uh, to urban heat as it becomes more and more obvious. But that's not planning, that's reacting. And we need to do better because we know that urban heat is one of the many consequences of climate change. And frankly, the urban dome, uh, the heat dome situation we saw, we're just going to see more of those and we're going to, and they're going to be worse. We know that about climate change. So first of all, we have to mitigate climate change. We have to do much more to actually mitigate the implications of climate change through reducing our energy use in transportation and buildings, more walking, biking and transit and that sort of thing, because that's going to mitigate how hot it's going to actually get. But at the same time, we have to plan for that heat because that heat's already here and it is going to get worse. Uh, And so we need to start designing it into our city. It's not just, sorry, it's not just things like trees. And trees are super important and very easy, and we should be doing much more in terms of urban tree canopy. But it's also things like how we design buildings to, for natural ventilation so we don't depend so much on air conditioning, passive solar shading so our, our homes don't get hot automatically during the day and, and, and because we haven't shaded them properly. Something as simple as white roofs. There's been studies that show that they substantially reduce the heat of buildings and could also right. reduce the heat of parking lots and streets because we tend to make our cities very black and that makes them very hot. But Brent, so, but all of this that you're talking about, I mean, those are all great suggestions, but even, we're just talking about them now. If we even put some of them into place, like we are talking years before that could have an impact. No, they're not. They're not suggestions. They are critical needs. And we have to stop thinking them in the, in the, in the context of, gee, well, how can we be creative? This is it's 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 actually irresponsible for us not to have implemented these already. These aren't that expensive. That's why I talk about the mindset shift. 
And frankly, we have to be a lot more critical of our cities and planners like me, city planning departments, who aren't being proactive enough and taking more action. Because street trees, for example, are an urban no-brainer. And we tend to treat them as something that is nice to have if we have money left over in our municipal budgets. Things like urban roofs, uh, uh, white roofs and such are no-brainers. And they're just not that expensive. So we need to give our head a shake and get on with these kinds of implementations because it isn't going to get cooler. It's going to keep getting hotter. Are there municipalities, though, that do have this on the agenda? Like, are we thinking about this? We are thinking about this, but this is to your point. Too much thinking, too much talking. And every time a heat event happens, we talk about it for a little bit and then it goes off the radar screen. It needs to be in Metro Vancouver, for example, it needs to be as fundamentally obvious as as designing for rain, maybe even more obvious than that. So uh, we have to get to the point where it's in our action and in our policy. And it can't be a two or three year study. It's got to be an urgent um, motion from city councils and town councils to have their staffs come back with urgent emergency recommendations on how to immediately implement urban heat um, uh, mitigation efforts in the design. Instead, we're going straight to something like more air conditioning, like that's going to solve the problem. That's kind of like more electric cars solving the problem of transportation. It's not enough. This can also be a design issue, though, can it not? Like this is something that I feel like developers and things can also institute on their own and then the crowd will follow. It, it, absolutely. It can, leadership can come from developers. It can come from designers and architects. It should come from City Hall. But my message is to City Hall, who I used to be a leader of, of course, City Hall has to allow it. They have to lead it, but at a minimum, they have to allow it. Because if a developer or an architect comes and proposes something, but, oh my gosh, it casts shadow, we automatically treat shadow as a problem instead of seeing shade as part of the solution. That doesn't mean we rebuild tall buildings and cast shadow over everything, but we start to treat urban shade as part of the urban definition of success instead of always automatically being a negative. And right now, too many planning departments do not have that mindset. All right. Well, listen, Brent, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. My pleasure. Interesting about that. That is Brent Totterin, who is a former Vancouver chief planner, now an urbanist at Todd Urban Works. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, we've been talking about it for weeks. We know that Vancouver's fire chief had said that the tents... The encampment along Hastings Street had to be removed. It is a fire hazard. It was a safety hazard. And the city of Vancouver, you know, pretty much announced when they would start doing this. Everybody knew yesterday morning was going to be the time when they started that process. And yet what we still saw was a pretty chaotic scene in the afternoon. Punches thrown, projectiles aimed at officers, several officers assaulted, some arrests made. Let's get an update on what happened. How did this unfold? Joining us once again is Constable Tanya Visiting Mitty, Relations Officer for the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Can you describe to us like what the process was like yesterday? So, so what happened? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think I need to you know, clear the air. There's a lot of misinformation going out there, both reported by media and just members of the public. So it, it's really important to note that what happened yesterday had nothing to do with the tents or the tent removal. Um, essentially, our officers were called by the Carnegie Centre for a man there who was uh, behaving erratically. I believe he was throwing around computers and being very aggressive with staff. And it's my understanding he was there for a few hours 
um, yesterday doing that. So Carnegie staff eventually called us, um, and we did have officers in the area. Um, I could touch more on that after, but Carnegie staff called us um, when we started or trying to arrest this man. He became very violent, and he started fighting with police officers. So uh, this incited the crowd that was already in the area with the city and with the tent removal, and so those bystanders interfered with us while we were obviously in our lawful execution of our duties. Um, trying to apprehend this offender. So uh, that's essentially what started um, the crowd uh, behaving that way. So unfortunately, because of that, that led to uh, several police officers from being assaulted and a few arrests made. Okay, so how many arrests were made in this case? So that's, uh, I still don't have that information right now. We hope to give an update later today. But um, yeah, several, several people were arrested as several police officers were assaulted. Okay, and are the officers all right? Yes, they'll they'll be okay. Okay, so what what could have been done differently here, Constable, to to prevent this from happening? As you say, it was two different situations that kind of got uh, you know merged together into causing this problem here. What could have been done differently? Well, I mean, um, you know, VPD VPD never um, issued this um, um, you know removal of tents. This was a, a fire department order. We were then requested by the city to be there. It was never uh, in the plans, nor was it our plan to ever, um, you know, tear people's tents down or anything. We were simply there to, um, you know, um, stand by and keep the peace in case anything, you know, criminal should arise. So that's why we were in the area. And that's why officers were already in that area. So what happened yesterday is just another example of, you know, our officers being in the lawful execution of our duty and essentially being ambushed and attacked by members of the public that live in that area. Right. So do you feel there's a misconception that people assume that the police were removing tents when that wasn't the case? Yeah. So for for anybody to think that would be very irresponsible and disingenuous, it's not uh, what we were there to do yesterday at all. Okay. So will there be a return to that area? Like, what are the plans now? So this will fall on the city. Uh, they are um, spearheading this project. They're spearheading this um, removal of the tents. So that'll be a question for the city um, as to what their plan is next. Okay. So how has this changed? What happens? Is this like something that you have seen? We talked about this the other day, right? About how the, that relationship between the officers and the community has gotten a little bit more aggressive, I guess, in that area. Does Are you concerned about that, especially in light of what happened yesterday? Yeah, I mean, this is just another example of our officers uh, essentially being ambushed and attacked. Not too long ago, we were, you and I were speaking about um, how our officers were simply sitting in their police vehicle and they got attacked with a man with a weapon. So this, uh, unfortunately, this is happening all too much. Um, and, you know, there are, there are so many issues, so many factors that are leading up to why this stuff is happening. But ultimately, you know, the police role is public safety. We are there day in and day out uh, to continue to help people that live in that area to keep people safe, to respond to violent calls that happen to people that live in there. So, um, uh, you know, solutions to uh, all the different issues uh, going on down there is, is a question for other levels of government. For is, sure. is that how you would classify what happened yesterday, ambushed and attacked? Is that how the officers feel? Yeah, I, I believe it's safe to say to, to safe to say that. I mean, like I said, we were there for an arrest at the Carnegie Center, called by Carnegie Center staff. And as we were making that arrest, um, that the crowd became very unruly. And, um, you know, those bystanders just interfered with, with us while we were trying to execute our duties. All right. Well, thank you so much for that update this morning. No problem.
This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Every week we have had more headlines. Another brazen shooting, daylight, busy neighborhood, you name it, all at all corners it seems like of Metro Vancouver. Yesterday was no exception. We had one person who has been killed, another taken to hospital. This was the shooting in Surrey that happened just after two o'clock yesterday afternoon. Someone shot at a taxi killing the 30-year-old male passenger. The driver of the taxi is the person who has been taken to hospital with serious injuries. What is going on here? Yes, police say this was a targeted shooting. Kim Boland joins us now, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Simi. Now, Kim, I'm sure you would love to take some time off this summer, like an extended period, but this really does seem to be ramping up. There's no end to these shootings. No, there certainly does not seem to be any end. And what we've seen in the last uh, couple of cases is very uh, people that aren't as high profile being targeted uh, by their rivals. And uh, one of the things I'm hearing is that because some of the bigger players are hiding out because they know uh, that they are, you know, potentially targets in this gang war, you know, younger people or people that are not as well known. Uh, who maybe are selling drugs for a line that is connected to one of the big groups are getting killed. So uh, they're, you know, in this conflict because it is so volatile right now, they're taking out anyone they can, whether or not they're a big player or someone deeply involved with one side or the other. Right. Was this one unique in any way? I mean, you know, we talk about bystanders and, and, you know, that doesn't often, we don't often get bystanders as closely involved as we have seen here. Well, I mean, this poor taxi driver is, oh, has yeah. serious injuries, right? And he's just doing his job, uh, driving someone to where they want to go and ends up shot. Fortunately, he wasn't killed, but, you know, his injuries are not minor. And uh, we have seen people killed in taxis before. The most recent one prior to this was when uh, Tequil Willis, just 14 years old, was shot to death uh, in December of uh, 2020 and um, was getting out of a taxi, right? So the driver could have been killed in that case. So I assume that some of these guys are taking taxis around just as sometimes they use rental cars because they're trying to be more discreet. They're trying to hide out. But that certainly did not uh, stop uh, this 30-year-old with a, quite a lengthy history involved in the drug trade from being killed and this poor taxi driver from being injured. Is this just, do you think, another round? Is this a continuation of the other shootings and things that we've seen in the last few weeks? Is it the same, same conflict? It's hard to say 100%. It's not going to be a matter of every single case is, you know, tit for tat, directly linked to the last one. Uh, This fellow has a lengthy criminal history. I would say he was more of um, someone at the street level involved in the drug trade. He was facing drug trafficking charges, you know, at the time of his death. Uh, Some have told me he was a low-level worker for the Brothers Keepers. Uh, If he's more of a frontline person... Uh, he would not be sort of a big player in, you know, in one gang or the other, right? So, you know, it could be that we're starting to see, as I mentioned, these lower-level uh, line workers being killed because they can't get at the big people at the top that they really want to uh, murder. And yet we have seen in, the, in some of the previous cases, Kim, haven't we, some progress made by police in terms of, of arresting people. That doesn't seem to be slowing anything down. 
No, it sure doesn't, because often the people that are charged are hired hitters, and they're being offered big payouts to go and take someone out, you know, in this gang conflict that has been raging for years now, right? This isn't new. We've had these bursts before. Uh, we forget that when it's quiet for a while, uh, but, you know, um, yeah, unfortunately, it hasn't gone away, and police took that step last week of releasing the warning poster. A lot of the people on that poster have had their own loved ones or others in their gangs killed in some of the recent shootings. It's always a controversial move, but, uh, you know, the police want the public to know that if you see these guys, it's good to get out of the coffee shop, get out of the grocery store, leave the gym, wherever you happen to see them, Right. But yes, we have had charges laid in a number of recent cases. I think that's good, uh, but you know, it doesn't end the violence. How effective are those warning posters? As you said, they are a controversial move. I feel like they were a fairly recent move that the police started doing. Are they effective? Well, it's hard to say. They certainly give the public uh, more information about who might be targeted, and is that a bad thing? I'm sure, I mean, I've talked to people who've been on the posters, the ones that were released last year, not the ones that have been released this year, uh, and, you know, they'll dispute that they've, in fact, uh, you know, they're at risk or they're putting the community at risk, right, and they don't like it, it makes them uncomfortable. What did happen last year uh, after the poster was, was released in May, when we had another similar spat of very bad mm. violence, uh, a lot of these guys took off. They left. They went underground, right? So it did uh, calm things down for a period of time. Uh, but it is a controversial move, and I know police only do it when they feel like they have no other choice. Right. That must be the way they're feeling right now then with all of these different cases going on. That's right. And, you know, when people getting shot are not people that are really well-known, you know, we just had an 18-year-old killed, you know, who was in a vehicle with someone else who might have been the actual target, that 18-year-old. Yes, he had some small association to the Brothers Keepers, one of the gangs involved in this conflict, but he was not a big player. He was not an actual member. He was just someone hanging out with some of those people, and he ends up dead. So, you know, um, sometimes the violence lessens when we do have these warning posters and these uh, extraordinary measures by police. I mean, they're out and about trying to head off any future attacks. Uh, but, you know, they're not following every single person around all the time. You know, and unfortunately, these killers are so brazen. There are so many firearms out there uh, that, you know, if charges end up getting laid, the killers are often as unknown as some of their victims have been. That is so true. That's certainly the way it feels like, right, with these last um, couple of shootings. Progress made, but it doesn't seem to be making any dent in the number of shootings out there. Uh, Kim, thank you so much again for being with us. Anytime. Appreciate that. That's Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun with the latest on the shooting in Surrey that happened yesterday. She pointed out like this poor taxi driver just driving somebody where they want to go. That's their job and get caught in the crossfire here in hospital now with serious injuries. The 30 year old passenger killed in what police describe as a targeted shooting. That's really all we know at this point. We've been waiting for an update uh, from IHIT, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, on this. They didn't have one yesterday afternoon, uh, late yesterday, uh, hoping to get one this morning. But you're talking about middle of the day, 2.20 in the afternoon, you know, 148th and 108th in Surrey. And this attack, which, yes, now an innocent bystander here has also been injured. Yeah, there's a lot of questions on this. So we'll keep asking that. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 ZKNW. Now, the order to remove the tents from Hastings Street in the downtown east side was done because the fire chief said, listen, this is a hazard. This is a safety hazard. This is a fire hazard, and this cannot be allowed to continue. But are there new risks, other risks that come from now dismantling these tents and having people go try to find some kind of shelter elsewhere? Well, for more on that, we're joined by Raji Sohal now. Good morning, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, yesterday was supposed to be this moving day, right, for the tents on the downtown east side. And some of them were removed, but not that many when you look at the overall picture of how many tents were there. And if you look at video and pictures from the scene, there were workers in safety vests uh, that you can see talking to the unhoused residents, talking to the tent owners. There was definitely a lot of media there. But it made me think of a very different scene from Toronto last year of a tent city camp removal. And that one was like, you saw police officers in full riot gear. They were kettling the encampment, totally different energy and so much more aggressive. And I and I was worried that that's what is what was going to happen uh, yesterday and in for a future uh, encampment removals too. But I think Vancouver is going about it in a different way. So that tent removal itself yesterday was relatively peaceful. Uh, there was conflict that arose, we heard, out of an unrelated event, which was an unwell person throwing computers that aggravated this fight. Uh, police were assaulted, we heard. Um, but I didn't think it was going to go down that way. I thought it was going to be uh, a bigger and more aggressive, potentially way more violent scene. Right. But we did hear from the BPD on that, right? About how they were just there to support. They weren't there to you know, even to do that, they were there to respond to called by the Carnegie Center staff to help out with that situation there. But the question I guess now becomes also, Raji, like what is next here? Because as you said, there's only a few tents that have been removed. Yep, it wasn't significant. And now those people, uh, there's some people who are still there in those tents that's still posing a dangerous situation. And I think that the fire chief who's come under some criticism from people who have organized tent cities and, and advocate and support for them, um, come under scrutiny for, you know, removing these tents, and then these people have nowhere to go. But they are dangerous. It's not just a matter of sidewalks anymore uh, being blocked, right? It's actual roads, streets that poses so much danger. And I saw uh, one firefighter say that there had been over a thousand calls this year, just this year alone, due to fire risk related to the unhoused and those tents. That's a frightening figure. I don't want to be alarmist, but uh, we know that it's really hard for regular cars to navigate around tent cities that sprawl into the street. What about an emergency vehicle that has to get somewhere really fast, right? So I think they've got to go, obviously. Tent cities have to go. But now the question is where? And I, I talked to Stepin Wood. He's a law professor in Canada Research Chair in Sustainability. And in the past, he's written about how the courts are ahead of the city of Vancouver and the Parks Board on this issue because the courts are taking into consideration human rights, uh, the human right to uh, be able to sleep somewhere, you know, and the impact of colonization on the vulnerable. So he said the courts have moved the dial on that front. But Steppenwood says overall perception of the unhoused in B.C. has become increasingly negative in the last couple of years. Here's what he had to say. I just think it's undeniable that the level of violence against homeless people 
and the level of uh, sort of difficulty, inconvenience, and um, unpleasantness in their daily lives far outweighs the level of inconvenience and violence um, by homeless or um, uh, you know socially disadvantaged people against other citizens. Uh, Another thing we've seen, and the courts are beginning to recognize this really just in the last couple of years, is that the claims about the harms of encampments, you know, rises in crime, violence, uh, fire safety, uh, health and safety, other health and safety issues, discarded sharps, human waste, um, etc., are routinely exaggerated and um, up until recently the courts had pretty much taken um, you know government uh, actors uh, claims about this at face value but in more recent times they've become more sensitive to the ways in which perceptions of these kinds of harms and risks can actually vary from the you know the, the real facts on the ground. I think it's important also to keep sight of the um, benefits of uh, encampments as compared to other alternatives. So what are the alternatives? The alternatives are things like living in the streets, camping temporarily in isolated areas where parks or bylaw officers won't find you, um, the isolation, the daily displacement, um, the violence on the streets, like you say, in the downtown east side, it can be a violent and uh, threatening place. There's plenty of evidence that, at least in some circumstances, the encampments provide an alternative to that. They provide benefits of community. They provide a focal point where services can be provided, support agencies. Well, that's that's an interesting point that he that he makes there too. But this is such a, an untenable, unsustainable situation, Raji. Yeah, it really is. And while I sympathize with the fact that the encampments can provide that kind of community, you know, you uh, know that you're going to get to know your neighbors in an area. There are hopefully facilities for use, and then support workers know that the encampment's there, and so they can go there to help individuals. But if you think about it being removed and us not putting these people anywhere else, then yeah, they are going to start showing up uh, in isolation in parks um, and not with others and, and alone. And then will that increase drug use, for example, and will that increase crime? Um, so solving one problem doesn't exactly uh, solve future problems. Right. But given that this is so visible, I mean, I, you know, I, again, and I wonder how it got to this point. I wonder how the city allowed it to get to this point. That's the frustrating thing is uh, you've seen the pictures too, right? Where this isn't just some tents on a sidewalk. This is the no. entire sidewalk covered. It, you know, if you try to walk down the sidewalk, there is no way that you can do that. So there's a lot of frustration here, I think. Um, perhaps, you know, not directed in the right area. My frustration here is with the city of Vancouver. How did he, how did you let it get to this point? 
Yeah. How did they let it get to this point? And also, I, I don't want to see any buck passing here. I think that the fire chief calling for the tent city removal is absolutely essential. They had to do that. Oh, yeah. they, their job is to make sure that people are safe and to prevent fires. That's what they're doing. Uh, so I want to see more action from the city about now what's next. Displace these people, but you got to put them somewhere. And it has to be somewhere that is safe for them as re- well as other residents of Vancouver. Agreed, right? They have to be more proactive in this. Um, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's uh, Raji Sohal there talking about the removal of the tents along Hastings Street there. Not very many of those tents actually got removed yesterday because, yeah, they ran into problems, as we've seen in the news. And there will be a continuation of that. But we look for an update now from the city of Vancouver about what approach they're going to take. And really, it's their own fault at this point that they let it get to this point and then had to rely on the fire chief to issue that order to now finally get in there and do something. So, yeah, no wonder there's a lot of frustration directed at the city on this issue.